0: Episode number 15 of the Media Narrative Podcast, a show featuring media makers, their stories, and their process.
1: Sometimes the playwright thinks they know everything about the play, and usually they do. But sometimes there's an unconscious element that they're not necessarily aware of, that you're not necessarily aware of, that the actors aren't necessarily aware of. And hopefully you create a nice atmosphere uh, so that that emerges.
0: Hello and welcome to the Media Narrative Podcast, I'm Rob Hoschild, and I believe that when we talk with storytellers, artists, and other people leading the public conversation, we better understand the ways that ideas can change the world. Today we'll sit down with theater director Hal Brooks to learn about how he guides the development and presentation of new plays. In a moment I'll ask him how he elicits audience feedback that actually changes plays. I'll ask about how new plays help shape our understanding of the world, and how we'll also talk about why Rachel Maddow reminds him of a rabbi. Theater director Hal Brooks has the ultimate summer job. He's based in Brooklyn and typically directs productions in New York, but when the weather gets warm, he leaves. For more scenic settings. He spends four weeks on Cape Cod and two in Ojai, California, where he brings new plays to the stage and asks audiences to evaluate what they've just witnessed. He's worked with a long list of great playwrights such as Laurie Jackman, Neil Labute, and Don DeLillo. I've been fortunate to spend quite a lot of time on the Cape And I've caught several of Hal Brooks' productions there. We talked recently online. As the conversation begins, Brooks is talking about how he began working on the Cape.
1: As a freelance director in 2008, um, and then again in 2009, uh, I came up with a play. Just like right now, I hire directors to come up and direct a play. Uh, I worked on a play by Annie Baker, a play called Nocturama. And the following year, a play called um, *Indio* by uh, Aladdin Ula. Um, and uh, what I really love about the Cape Cod Theater Project is that you get a solid week on the Cape um, to develop a play. Yeah, that's nice. It's a it's a beautiful surrounding. I think a lot of people get get you know are are really seduced by the idea. Uh, what's nice about it also is that the audience is is incredibly engaged, as as you know. So what. We do is we develop new plays, so plays that have maybe have had a reading here or there, plays that are in different stages of development, um, plays that have not had productions. Uh, so um, that's that's pretty much the, the the disqualifying factor. If you've had a production, we're not going to uh, have you come up. Right. We we rehearse these plays with a you know a cast of actors, a playwright, a director, for about thirty hours total, including presentation time. Um, and we present the plays three times—Thursday, um, Friday, and Saturday nights—and after each reading, there's a there's a talk back with our audience. And you know, I've been Im- I've been involved with Cape Cod Theater Project as artistic director for seven years, as a freelance person for two years. It's been around for 23 years, so the audiences really are involved. They participate. They know the drill, and they're invested. And it's sort of. Um, I feel like the playwrights and the directors are often sort of like, "Well, wow, three three talkbacks? I don't want to do that." You know, there's uh-huh. a there's a resistance to it. But then they they sense there's a you know that the audience is very articulate, they're super smart, and they know what they're talking about. So they they enjoy it. The the playwright and the director enjoy it, and and I think that similarly, the um, the audiences have always enjoyed it, whether or not they love the play or not. Those who stay for the talkback are invested in that talkback.
0: Absolutely. Now, I've been to at least one or two of the Cape Cod Theater production plays uh, every year for the past few years and have participated in those talkbacks and witnessed them. And they really are pretty extraordinary because after watching this play... Then all of the actors and the director and sometimes a a producer comes out and sits right on stage and takes these questions. It's a very rare and precious opportunity for the audience to really have this one-on-one back and forth with the people who are making this art. So I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit more about exactly how that process works, what you ask of the audience, and how those interactions generally go.
1: Um, it's definitely evolved over the past seven years. So, you know, I, I, I remembered how Andy, uh, who, who is my predecessor, Andy Polk used to run the talkbacks. And I think he runs them, you know, very well. He runs them the way that I think most, uh, people, you know, who do these talkbacks run them. He asks for feedback. He asks for what people like. He asks, um, you know, what people thought. And, and I would always remember that there would always be an engagement with the audience members, with each other. Um, and I really, really liked that. Um, however, I felt like the actual physical conditions at that at that original theater that we were in mm-hmm. were, were horrendous. Um, there was no air conditioning. There was a lot of fans blowing. Um, a lot of people were very soft of voice. So when they would when they would say something, the person behind them couldn't hear it. The fans are blowing. It's hot. It was off. It was really kind of awful. (laughs) And I just remember like, Oh, I realized I've got to be the person who is the interpreter here. I've got to take that comment. Nobody else can hear it. So I've got to re, you know, recapitulate it and send it back to the audience so that they Mm -hmm. could hear it. So I had to be sort of like in a, in a, in a mode of like hyper attention. Um, and in, in a way, I wasn't as involved in it because I was almost that, like acting like I was a microphone um, or, or as an interpreter or something like that. So I felt that those conditions were oppressive. So what we introduced, like, using microphones... I mean, it sounds like the silliest thing in the world or the easiest thing in the world, but that's some, somehow that, like, you know, led me to believe, okay, we've got to establish some order here. Um, so I created... Um, I didn't create this. I modified. Uh, there's a woman named Liz Lerman who's a choreographer, mm-hmm. and she has a four um, four question uh, system of 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 doing talkbacks so that uh, an artist who is in a very uh, sensitive and vulnerable state can accept uh, feedback from an audience who's hungry to give you know some feedback, um, and the. The, the playwright or the, you know, wh- whoever is the artist can refuse any part of those four uh, segments. I've modified it, um, made it I, what I feel is more conducive to my audience. So what I do is I break it down into four parts. You know this because you've been there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have them, uh, I have the audience say what they liked, which oftentimes is referred to as pop, popcorn. What popped for you? you know, what, what intrigued you? What did you find evocative? That's part one. Part two is, um, uh, what do you think the play is essentially about? Um, that's when I think the audience really gets into the nitty-gritty. of they, they start to think less viscerally, and they start to think about, like, I, I think, in a way, what's going to really be helpful for the playwright. Um, this is what I interpreted the play to be about. Is that, is that what the playwright intended for it to be about? Part three is what questions the playwright and the director and the cast might have of the audience and part four is attempting to get very neutral questions asked to the playwright. So mm-hmm. instead of like, why on earth would you ever have decided, <laughs> you know, to have a bus show up at the end of the play? Hopefully, they ask a question like, can you, you know, can you can you tell us about the bus? Your choice of adding the bus at the end of the play. I don't mm-hmm. know what play play that is, but um, <laughs> I want to see it. Yeah. yeah. So so the talkbacks I think um, are structured. Uh, I don't know if they're rigorously intellectual, in any way, but they do have a structure to them that I think is very helpful. Um, and I think that the audience, like you know, at this point, seven years into it, they get it. I mean, the first one of the first plays that I directed as artistic director, a a person who was involved with the Cape Cod Theater Project and had been for years, um, was it was kind of a free for all kind of talkback. He raised his hand and he said. I don't know. I I was with the playwright all the way and then at the end I just felt you blew it.
0: <laughs> oh man.
1: And so I, I I had to talk my playwright off the ledge. So at, yeah. at that point I vowed never again would I have a talk back without like putting some certain provisos just up front. No playwriting. You know, try to keep your comments positive so that that the you know the playwright can walk away with it with you know with, with In a non-defensive posture, you know, stuff like that. So it seems very basic, but that's kind of the order of business.
0: Well, you raise a really interesting point because I do feel that the audience has a very big responsibility at that point. Here is uh, a playwright who has been working on this piece in isolation or in relative isolation and now first performances these are generally always the first performance of these plays is that right usually yeah, yeah. i mean there
1: it's it's not uncommon that a play has had um a, a, a reading in in-house at a theater you know without an audience gotcha. or at somebody's apartment with you know fellow playwrights playing the roles that kind of thing.
0: Pretty informal and friendly types of presentations. Yeah. So it's a very vulnerable moment. And here you are in front of strangers, and m- maybe these are experienced playgoers. Maybe they're just somebody who's on Cape Cod for vacation and m- might be coming from in a very informed place in terms of the theater or not. Um, so it's a vulnerable position to be in. I know as an audience member, I've sometimes sat there and... and found myself unable to think of one intelligent thing to say and sometimes I've I've said nothing. Can you give an example of a time when the play was really affected in a in a positive way or in some substantial way from a from night to night say has that happened very often?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that the 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 thing that one thing to realize is that a small change can have a big effect. Hmm. So, it could be as simple as you know, reducing a scene uh, by a few words, uh, and it has a radiating effect, an escalating effect, a progressive effect for the rest of the play. Um, so, you know, it's not every playwright who's going to say like, "Ah, I've decided to gut Act Two entirely, and uh, that's that." Um, I- I've had people, you know, like this year, Laura Jackman, uh, who came up with End of Message. That was her play. Right. That's the you one know I she. You. She had. I don't know which night you went, but on Thursday she had an intermission, and and you know, I, I, she realized this on her own, as as well as the the, the you know the director is like, it's an hour and hour and thirty minutes. You don't need an intermission, so they did the play without an intermission, and that may not seem like a big deal, but you know, like sometimes there's a play that really, really you know, craves an intermission. It has a cliffhanger ending or you know act one is set in you know a soda shop and act two is on a boat you know like you want to have two two different acts for whatever reading mm. uh, for whatever reason so in this case you know laura and the, the playwright said well what would it be like if we put the acts together and then i think that then helped them get to that third night where like okay if if we're gonna do that then we have to make other changes along the way so that we're really feeling the play's progress so I mean, I think that's a that's a sort of an easy example of how um, the the interaction with the the, the audience has co- has affected some change. Um, you know I think that one thing that an audience member doesn't always realize, and I think that a couple of the playwrights this summer had a, had a really good way of articulating it, is that the playwright may not really have questions for the audience after. During the talk back? Because in a lot of ways, the playwright has already asked those questions during the play. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the, the playwright had certain questions like, does this work? Is this funny? Um, should that be more dramatic here? Should this, you know, character, does this character need to do we need to hear more of their backstory? And so while they're watching, they're paying attention to the questions that they've asked themselves prior. Mm-hmm. And the audience is giving them answers through their reactions or by looking at their program Do you know mm. so I, I i think that sometimes the audience doesn't know how much they're actually participating in development even when the you know the playwright isn't saying hey i've got questions for you did you like that character you know right yeah.
0: so by the way the play you mentioned end of message by laura jackman um i went on friday night so it was the night right after you uh, and she had Uh, Talked about removing the intermission. And I thought that worked really well. That play was so sort of intense and fast moving. And it was like a breathless run through those 90 minutes. And I didn't feel like anybody there needed that intermission. So I thought that was a really smart move in that case. Um, So, you know, maybe just a little more background because I know that there's been some very major actors and playwrights who've participated in Cape Cod Theatre Projects, several of these plays have gone on to production and winning awards, how about just a little more background on some of those aspects?
1: Hmm, uh, that's, a, that's a, always a good question about, you know, I, I, and you as you know, when I introduce the plays, I always sort of start with, you know, of the 84 plays that we've developed, 58 have gone on to have future lives, or whatever the actual number is. right. Um, and I think that is an interesting measure of the success of our operation, of, of, of uh, the quality of plays that we bring in. But ultimately, what, what interests me the most is not that, is this play going to you know succeed? But is this artist going to succeed? Hmm. So, you know, um, <clears throat> Laura Jackman came up, uh, she's on my mind, I guess, um, uh, three times. And the first time, this is kind of an anecdote but um i it was before i was artistic director uh the a- andy had asked hey do you have any plays that might be of interest for the summer and i had a play of hers that i really really liked a lot i i sent it to andy he's like that's great um can you come on up and uh and work on the play and i was about to have a baby oh. and or, or my wife was <laughs> and i was uh gonna parent the child. Um, Thanks and, for that clarification. Yes. Yeah, just in case you're, you, you, uh, you, your 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 uh, listeners are wondering, we'd
0: be breaking new ground there. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yes, developing a new kind of production. Um, <laughs> so um, I couldn't go. I mean, you know, I, I, I ran it by my wife, and she was like, "I think it's a really bad idea to like you know drive for five hours with the baby and uh, you know spend he he would have been two months or something like that." Mm. Um, and interestingly enough, Andy was about to have a baby himself oh wow um so i was i was unable to go and work on laura's play laura worked on the play and i and i do i somehow feel like um that's exactly when andy stepped down he was like that's it i've had a baby i'm done Mm -hmm. and then he called me it's like hey do you want to do this thing i'm like well i've had a baby that'd be great you know i'll go up (laughs) up on the cape but anyway so so laura you know she's been a, a favorite playwright of mine for a long time that one um uh led to our working together on another play, a play called Residence, which we brought up to uh, Cape Cod Theatre Project, worked on it for a, for a week. And it was one of those things that, it, as a freelance director, you always want. You want to be able to work on a play that, um, that you makes a lot of progress in the, in the amount of time that you're there. And then somebody says, we want to produce it. And that's what happened in that case. Uh, we worked on the play. It was the kind of play that, you know, a week later, people in Falmouth would come up to me and say, wow. I'm still thinking about *Residence*. That play was amazing. So I contacted uh, the guy who runs, who, who used to run um, Actors Theatre of Louisville. They have this uh, the Humana Festival of New American Plays, and I pitched him the play. And then, you know, the Cape Cod Theater Project ended. I hopped on a plane. I got off, you know, to go to Ohio. And after I got off the plane, I got an email from Les saying, "I want to do this play." So, you know, sometimes that's the way it will happen. Um, I'm just trying to think other plays. I think our, our biggest success is almost Maine, uh, which preceded me a John Cariani play, uh, that he developed at Cape Cod theater project in early two thousands. I, I don't know what year, maybe 2003 or mm-hmm. six or something. Um, it did not get good reviews in New York city. The first time it was presented. Um, but it was a very sincere play, a very, um, you know, no curse word play, mm-hmm. uh, um, Delightful play, and maybe that's why Charles Ishwood didn't like it, I'm not sure. Um, Nevertheless, that play, uh, people discovered that play, and community theaters and high schools saw it as a great play for their audiences. No curse words, an easy play to cast a lot of people, a lot of young people, and it was the most produced play in North America over the past 10 years. Wow. I I mean, I, I would say probably besides Shakespeare of some kind, but okay. that, that play, uh, you know, has done an, uh, just amazing amount of, uh, productions for, for John. So those are t- like two examples. Right. Another example of the, um, you know, we develop playwrights, uh, we develop artists, not just the plays, Is you know, we had Lucas Nath up a couple of years ago with a play called Hillary and Clinton. And it was, I guess it must've been I'm not sure if it was 2015 or 2016, but it was, it was, I was, I think it was 2015. So before the election, but a year before. Um, and it was a play, you know, kind of about, uh, a Hillary character and a bill character and kind of going over some old ground. Um, and it, it went on to have other productions that, you know, like around the country, but more importantly, I think in a way is like, you know, Lucas Nathan did a doll's house part two, which went to Broadway. And so, we, I like to think that, you know, we're providing an opportunity for an artist to come up and work on their creative juices on a play, but also along the path of what's going to be the rest of their career. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, we're really happy about, you know, Itamar Moses, he did a, he had a musical up on, on the Cape about 10 or 12 years ago. It was called reality. The musical, it eventually had a different title. And, um, and that I think that may have been the first musical he ever worked on. But now he, he wrote the book of Band's Visit and is a Tony winner. So, wow. you know, we're we're pre- pretty pleased.
0: Now, that's, that's a really great track record. And, and it's so interesting that you have, in some cases, brand new playwrights, as well as more experienced ones like the Laura Jackmans. Yeah. But then you also have some actors every summer who are very well known uh, such as this year, Sam Waterston was in for production and in the past, Bill Pullman and Anna Paquin. So um, what is that like to have these very experienced actors, uh, some in film, some Broadway in New York uh, working on these brand new plays? Uh, What kind of opportunity does that provide for the playwrights and for the actors?
1: Um, I think it's great for, you know, it's great for the playwrights, it's great for the ac- other actors, it's great for the organization, obviously, it's, and it's fun for the audience. So, you know, it's sort of, it, it works really well. Um, a lot of times we'll have, you know, people who aren't necessarily quote-unquote stars yep. who are incredibly experienced and Tony-nominated or Tony-winning people, um, and people are always like, wow, that person's such a great actor. I'm like, yeah, they're a great actor. That's <laughs> because they're a great actor. You don't um, have
0: to be in movies to be a great
1: actor. You don't have to be a star to be a great actor. Right. Um, and we've had a lot of that. A lot of people who come up who aren't, aren't necessarily um, name brands on Cape Cod. But, you know, I think within the, you know, Broadway community, the off-Broadway community, even the regional theater community, they're, they're, they're well-known entities. Um, and I think, you know, anybody, you know, they're, like last week we had more Tierney. Mora Tierney, you know, was dying to do a new play. She just was really interested in it, working on her craft. Being, you know, in front of an audience, um, that was really, really fun for us. And her connection to us, um, she has. There are a couple of paths, but one of them is that she's. Her family's from Boston. I think there is a relative of hers who has a house on the Cape. So she kind of, you know, was interested in what's going on in the Cape. But she's on the show, um, The Affair, and um, Omar Mithwali, uh He had been on the Cape ten years earlier. He's, he and I went to the same uh, conservatory, American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, Um, he, I think it was my first season, he came up to do Bess Wall's play, um, American Hero. And so, Bess had a new play, and Bess sent it to us, it was called Continuity, and somehow she got to talking to Omar, and Omar's like, you know, I think Maura might be interested in coming up, so that's how all that stuff happened. So it was great for her. You know, it was like, it was a good thing for Maura uh, as well, Mm -hmm. to kind of work on those chops as as a, as a, you know, as an actor, like, what's it like? Because that's, I think, you know, my wife is a, is a classical theater actress, um, and she also loves doing new plays. Uh, so it, it, it's a kind of thing where it's like, it's great to do Shakespeare because, oh my God, we've been, these words are amazing. These ideas, these themes, these scenes, these characters, amazing. And you know that they're there. With a new play, it's a different muscle. It's like, I don't know what this is yet. Or right. I'm going to help the playwright figure out what this is. Or I think this is what this character needs to be in this moment you know so you are really present at the creation and that can be a really really powerful and exciting thing yeah
0: and and i know that you've had a big emphasis on working on new plays throughout your entire career and what's interesting to go to to this idea of media it is another way of reflecting in an immediate way on the world around us. Sometimes I've gone to your plays and other plays where it almost feels like this is a different take on reporting the news of the day in a way. Yeah. Uh, And I wonder what what your feelings are about that aspect of the theater. To what degree is it about sort of, Reflecting upon what's right in front of us, and obviously we're in this very media-saturated moment right now. But to what degree do you f- see the theater as trying to comment, give a sort of first take on what's happening in the world today, and uh, providing a story to sort of frame that for people?
1: That's, um, I think, that's our job. I really do. I think that's that's you know, we are the the commentators in the moment, in an artistic light telling great stories about what's happening um i don't think that cape cod theater project is inherently political at least i i don't i don't think that's our mission Mm -hmm. um but inevitably it is you know inevitably if you're going to be in the world of ideas you're going to be confronting ideas that maybe for someone else are uncomfortable or for someone else you're championing their ideas so in a basic thing here you know i read um Will Arbery's play Heroes of the Fourth Turning. And I love this guy as a writer, you know, and it happened to be about Catholic uh, conservatives at a college uh, in the West, um, one of whom is, you know, uh, is a Breitbart fanatic, you know. Mm. Um, But they're also dealing with sort of the intellectual underpinnings of the conservative movement, it represented conservative people in a, in a, in a, I think in a positive light in a lot of ways. And I just thought, wow, I mean, that's really interesting. I'm really curious about how what I perceive to be a fairly left leaning audience on the Cape, how are they going to respond to that? Um, I I don't think it was like a deliberate provocation on my part for me. It was just like, I try to choose the four best plays that match each other best. Um, So in that case it was, you know, it was a really interesting choice. Um, I was thinking about Ojai for a second, because I think that OHI has a much more, it's like, its mission is more political. Um, ours isn't. Mine is Mine is not necessarily about that. I think it's about telling great stories. Not that Ohai isn't. Uh, OHI is also about telling great By stories. By the
0: way, just so to, it's clear yeah. for all the listeners, OHI is a theater company based near San Francisco.
1: OHI Playwrights Conference is, is a... Um, is, it's actually about an hour and 20 minutes north of L.A. Okay. And um, it's in this lovely uh, town called o- the Ojai, which is a valley, which um, the Thomas Fire last uh, December, January sort of nearly ravaged it. So it was a very, very interesting place to be. But that, that, there's a playwrights conference here that's now in its 25th year that I'm the associate uh, artistic director of. Okay, thanks yeah. for that. And we do, they do something similar uh, as, that we do on, on the Cape, except rather than doing it one play a week, we do eight plays um, all at once over the course of two weeks. Mm. A- and there's a pre- one presentation of each play the final weekend. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's intense, and it's a great community. It's a, it's a different feeling, though. Definitely
0: sounds like this is is your thing, or or is at times at the moment working in these intense uh, incubators for these new plays. Uh, although I, I am aware of the fact that you worked on a play, uh, well, you've worked on many plays, but one that I just came across in the last few days was Dante Lillo's Valparaiso, um, which received really rave reviews, and... Um, Uh, And that was one that really focused on the media. Um, That was sort of a big part of what DeLillo was trying to do there. Did you work directly with him on that? I understood that he was a big supporter of that production.
1: I did. It was, uh, I I would, you know, if I look back at at all the plays that I worked on, um, there's the plays that changed my career and there's the plays that changed my life. And that would be the one that changed my life. Um, I, it's a long story, and I won't bore you too much, but for about four years, I had not done any theater at all. I quit, and um, a friend of mine, I wanted to get back into doing theater around, around 2000, and a friend of mine, uh, I asked her for her advice, and she said, um, she gave me a, a bunch of different ideas, and one of which was the Lincoln Center Theater Director's Lab, where they bring about 90 to 100 directors, young directors from across the world, for about three weeks to do lectures and symposiums and workshops. sounded awesome and I was in New York, um, and I applied, and one of the things that they asked for was choose a play to describe uh, that has a, 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 a unique style. And uh, I really had, like, I'd walked into a used bookstore, I saw the play, I bought a copy of the play a couple weeks before, and I the first play I'd ever directed was another play by DeLillo mm. called the Day, the Day Room. And that was when I was in acting school just getting started as a director. And I looked at Valparaiso, and I read it, and I was like, yeah, well, that's a different style, isn't it? So I, I wrote about that, and then, you know, within a month, I get an e- email saying, congratulations, welcome to the Lincoln Center Theater Director's Lab, you're going to be workshopping a play by Don DeLillo.
0: Wow. I
1: get a, I get a call from the woman who runs it, and she goes, expect to hear from him. I'm like, no, 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 he's a he's a reclusive uh, uh, novelist, there's no way he's going to get in touch with me. And she goes, no, I bumped into his agent yesterday, he's going to call you this week. So within a week, I'm like, on a date with Don DeLillo. (laughs) Um, and I'm gushing because he was my favorite novelist. I'd read every single book of his. Um, he was very involved. He was involved with a workshop and when after the, after the Lincoln center theater, um, the workshop, I brought it to this theater company in New York, which consisted of a bunch of American conservatory theater uh, alumni. And I said, I'm going to get this play produced. Are you interested? And, and eventually we did get it produced. Um, I was fascinated by that play. The play came out of the Clinton-Lewinsky uh, scandal. Um, it's not about that in any way, shape, or form, but it's about the over abundance of media saturation and interviewing and getting to know every single detail about everybody to the point where you don't know yourself. And, and I think it was an interesting um, moment for me because I was at a point where I didn't know who, what I wanted to be doing anymore. I felt very lost. And the central character, Michael, is similarly completely lost and literally gets lost. He goes to the wrong Valparaiso, mm-hmm. um, and he, you know, he's supposed to go to Valpara- Valparaiso, Indiana, ends up on a plane to Valparaiso, Florida, and eventually to Chile. And the media goes crazy about this story, and they find it, you know, uplifting and life-changing, until it's discovered that it's a fraudulent story, and we find out what's really underneath it. Um, I, it's one of those places where, like, when I read it. I immediately knew, and this has happened a couple of times where like, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with it. I knew how I wanted to stage it, I knew the tone of it, I knew like the the, the design of it. Um, and part of that's just like he's is great writing, you know like mm-hmm. I, I, and I, the other part is that I think that I just was really in tune with what he was trying to do, and he was incredibly helpful, incredibly supportive. He brought all of his friends uh, to see the production in 2002. Um, and it, it put me on the map as a director, so that it was really exciting. Yeah, and I'm been... still excited thinking about it. You know?
0: <laughs> I'd love to see a production of that sometime. I never have. I'm also a fan of his novels, so hopefully uh, that will come around again in one way or shape. Uh, and you've been you've stayed on the path very much in theater ever since producing that play. Then, correct. Now, you—you you, uh, a theme in that play was media saturation. Do you mind if I ask you how you take in media these days? Um, mm. News, information, entertainment, how, how do you kind of consume media? What is that like for you?
1: I go through phases of 24-7 saturation, and then I go through phases of, of uh, media fasting. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it's rare, I think, for me to find myself in sort of a healthy me- middle, <laughs> middle ground. Um, I, you know, I was when I was in Ojai. I was completely unplugged. It was great. Mm. was, but I wasn't really. You know, right. like I was. There was definitely checking the, the the headlines, if nothing else. I love Twitter. Um, I get that's my news feed uh, way more than Facebook. Um, I love the fact that you can follow the, the the journalists of our time as they're developing the story, uh, as the story is about to come out. Um, I love I love the interplay between the journalists. Uh, I find that incredible, you know, so whether it's Maggie Haberman or um, uh, Mike Schmidt, or, or, or I guess maybe he doesn't have it, but um, uh, I love watching that in, in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, um, I watch Rachel Maddow every night. Um, I love her story. She's a storyteller. Yep. Um, Historian. Yeah, yeah. But she also like, it, it, her delivery is um, almost rabbinical. Uh. Um, how she does like her 20 minute, segment before the first commercial. It's all like she could certainly say, this here is the news, and I'm now reporting the news. And that and and what I'll be reporting is the Russia connection. No, it's like, here's a person. This person is interesting. What's so interesting about this person? Why is this person connected to this person? Why in the person you know, she'll she'll go through the whole story and then she'll leave you with a cliffhanger. Um, after the twenty minutes, so you like want to come back and find out what actually happened. Almost like um,
0: a dramaturge or a playwright kind of thinking.
1: I think that's right. I think that that she is inc- an incredible storyteller. Um, whereas, like you know, uh, Larry, uh, Larry O'Donnell, who's on afterwards, is is more of a preacher. Yeah, she's she's more of a rabbi. You know, like in the in the way that her story is evolving. He's right. more of like there's something about there's something more moralistic. About how how Lawrence uh, Lawrence O'Donnell comes uh, on afterwards. Interesting. Um, I don't know that that. So my media is I, I would say it's MSNBC. Uh, I start the morning checking the times, uh, and then I'm doing uh, a, a Twitter. Uh, uh, what do you call it? IV drip throughout <laughs> throughout the day. I try I try to wean myself off of it so that I'm not doing it like all morning. I even try to like write how many times I've checked. That doesn't ever last mm-hmm. because then some crazy story happens and you're like, ah, forget it. I'm off that diet. Well, I need to know.
0: what. What's in- interesting about that, among other things, uh, is that you are looking at it. It sound, when you talk about it, it's as if through the frame of somebody who works heavily in the theater. And you're looking at the dialogue between people on Twitter, and you're looking for storytelling and characters. So I think there's, even if you do go through these saturated moments, it sounds like you're still looking at it in, in a way that's healthy and connected to your, your artistic interests. Um, do you write um, plays at all?
1: Well, that's where I was going to go. Uh, I, I am a listener. Uh, so so wh- when i'm when I'm following the feed I'm never responding um i I don't think I could handle it like I think that uh, first of all, I probably have like you know seven seven followers and they're all my <laughs> friends from college um, but if I were to like you know respond or to pontificate or to editorialize or opinionate about something, I'd be so concerned with um saying something that would offend people and saying something that might be misconstrued. I, and I think that that happens so frequently that I'm definitely, I'm definitely, a, I, I read and I listen. I don't produce mm-hmm. as, as a writer. I have only um, dabbled and, you know, um, I've never have thought about writing a play uh, of any sub, now, like no play has emerged as like, ah, this is a play. Um, I think I, you know, I think I would really enjoy uh, a, 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 tv directing but i don't think i'd be very interested in like being in a writer's room Mm -hmm. and write in writing that's just not i i i i I, I not though i do understand there's a lot of interchange in a writer's room which is a very unconventional way of writing you know it's not all writer in a room by himself it's like you know eight writers in a room talking about teasing out episodes and teasing out characters and teasing out scenes so that sounds more interesting to me but i it's not i don't know I, i i guess maybe i uh I I feel more like I'm an interpreter than I am a a creator.
0: So just one last question then about that before I let you go about directing, about interpreting. I wonder if you could sort of describe, having had all this experience over the years, what makes for successful directing of a play? What makes that work?
1: I think uh, where I've had the most success directing a play is... um, listening. I mean, again, again, it goes back to listening. I mean, it's weird. I mean, I, I've evolved. I think, you know, when, when I did Valparaiso or when I did The Day Room back in, you know, the 90s or whatever that was, um, I I would read something and I was like, I know how to do this. And this is what you need to be doing. You need to read this and you need to, you know, watch this movie and take a look at that scene. Um, it was very much like kind of uh, maybe Auteur is, is a little exaggerated, but it, certainly I was I was more of the, the, I will be the director and I will direct the moment. I will direct, uh, it'll be from my point of view. And now I feel like I'm much more interested in um, listening to what the actors have to say about a moment. Um, listening, you know, kind of hearing what the play is, how the play is informing me rather than how I'm informing the play. So in a way, I've become more passive, and I think that's actually better. Hmm. Um, it feels more collaborative, in a way. Um, I guess that's it. I think that if I had to put my finger on it, it'd be that—that uh, that would be my take on it.
0: Listening and collaboration.
1: Listening and collaborating rather than uh, uh, coming up with a de- you know one strong definitive idea that I'm now going to impose mm-hmm. on the play, the design, the actors, the structure. I don't I don't feel that way I try to I think that one of the the, the, the trickiest parts of, of dramaturgy is that you want to listen to the playwright but you also want to listen to the play and that's the thing is like you're trying to connect the play and the playwright hmm. sometimes the playwright thinks they know everything about the play and usually they do but sometimes there's an unconscious element that they're not necessarily aware of that you're not necessarily aware of that the actors aren't necessarily aware of and hopefully you create a nice atmosphere uh, so that that emerges I always I even when I'm doing serious material, I always try to keep a light room. I try to keep things funny or fun um, because I feel like, well, if you're you know if you're going to live in the heaviness of it, you want to keep it light. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly, if it's if it's a funny play, you want to keep it light. Yeah. Um, so that is that tends to be my approach to things. I, I like or or to the to rehearsal process. I like to keep it lively and fun, and I think a lot of creativity comes out of that um, rather than like you know, this is incredibly serious material and we need to kind of, I don't know, be very sacred about it all the time. I think, I think that, that that can be very stultifying. So.
0: Yeah, that approach sounds, the, you know, the collaborating and the listening also sounds like a, a generally good approach to managing and leading people as well. Do you see part of your job as, uh, you know, as the deft management and leadership of people to work together on creating a product?
1: I do. I think that um, you know, certainly as as far as Cape Cod goes, my 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 central ethos is, you know, this is a beautiful environment. Um, and we want people to create beautiful things here. So uh I try to engender that philosophy, you know, in from interns uh to my staff to the board, so that we're actually you know, it's like it's like, hey, come and join join us for a week. Have fun. Uh, it's a party. There's beach. There's there's nature. There's a bike route, and then there's you know there's rehearsal time and there's presentation time and like all of that, you want that all to be under this sort of like giant umbrella of like goodwill. We're all through, you know we want you to create something beautiful. We're giving you this opportunity, um, so I do try to create that sort of I think that of that as a certain kind of collaboration, mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully one that has you know a uh, uh, good effect on both the, the, the play as well as the journey of the playwright.
0: Well said. And you just mentioned the bike route, which reminded me that I should mention the person who connected us, my cousin Ken Chetland, uh, who's been a big supporter of Cape Cod Theater Project and is also trying to extend the bike routes around Cape Cod. So uh, hey. shout out to him.
1: Any way of supporting Ken, uh, the bike route, I'm, I'm in favor. He's a, he's a good man, and he's a great supporter of uh, Cape Cod Theatre Project.
0: Could not agree more. So what's yeah. ahead for you in general, your career or next year on the Cape? Uh, what, what's coming up?
1: Well, big news on the Cape um, is that it's our 25th uh, year. So I have to figure out what that means for us. Hmm. If, does that mean that we do a best of year? Or you know, do we keep doing what we're doing and, and bringing the best plays Uh, that we could get our hands on uh, for summer 2019 so that's a big that's going to be a big focus of the year uh in general um i'll be uh, i'm teaching up at yale um i'll be teaching either two or three classes up there one in the fall and two in the spring Uh, i'm really excited about that and i'm sure i'll be doing other professional productions down the road
0: Fantastic. Well, Hal, looking forward to all of that. We'll see you on the Cape next summer, and thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Pleasure, Rob.
0: Learn more about the work of Hal Brooks at CapeCodTheatreProject.org. I really recommend next summer going to the Cape Cod Theatre Project. It's an intimate theater experience, the likes of which you will not find anywhere else. And, hey, it's Cape Cod. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded your theme music. Please subscribe to The Media Narrative at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob Hoshal. Thank you so much for listening.